Well, as you can tell, we're starting a new series today. This is one of the most important series that we do because it's the only one that we do every single year. Obviously, the content changes, but the theme is always the same, global outreach. You know, God didn't leave us here on the earth to have church services. We're going to do that better when we get to heaven, right? Somebody with me on that one? God left us here on earth to reach the world around us. And so what we do every year is we take a time where we stop and we actually remind ourselves of that. And we do it by focusing on some of the coolest things that God is doing on the earth that you're probably not going to hear about in any of your social media or on the news. And so we try to bring in uh, some people who are actually working on the front lines of what God is doing in in special ways and uh, people who are uh, honestly experts in their field at what they do. And uh, so today we've got a good friend of mine with me who his passion and what he has dedicated his life to is reaching the next generation. Uh, Newsflash for everybody here today, uh, you will die. Just wanted to like get you to smile. So that didn't make you smile. Okay, well, some of you, anyway, you're going to heaven. You should smile about that. But when we die, what happens if we have not left behind a generation that can do better than what we did with our time on the earth. Amen, anybody with me on that one? And so uh, the gentleman that I'm about to introduce you to is a a new friend of mine, but quickly becoming a great friend. By the way, an excellent cook of lamb, Um, just for the fun of it. You didn't need to know that, but I thought I'd tell you. Anyway, uh, he's currently pastoring a church in Austin, Texas, but leading an organization all around the world to help us think about and actually effectively reach the next generation. Would you put your hands together? Grace, Gary Krill, everybody. Well, I was told that I'm invited to, uh, to come cook some lamb, and uh, I, I get to preach on top of that. So I'm really grateful for the invitation. You know, your gift will make room for you and bring you before kings, apparently. You know, so that's what I've heard. It's uh, good morning, Grace Life. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to meet you guys. If you're uh, having trouble with my accent, I do apologize. Uh, I can't do anything about it, but just smile and nod, and I'll feel better. You'll feel better. We'll get through this eventually, okay? Uh, just just hang in there. But just so grateful for uh, the Grace, Grace Life team and, and Pastor Jimmy. You guys have built something special here. Uh, this is a great church, and it is a privilege to uh, be with you guys today and to get to minister the word to you guys today. Um, a little bit about myself is uh, you would notice and find out that there are many pastors out there that has been called to comfort the conflicted, right? So they are very comforting. They're very loving. They'll bring a word on a Sunday, and you will leave church feeling better than what you felt coming to church, okay? Those are amazing pastors, and I hope they invite some of them to come speak at some point in time. That is not who I am, okay? I have not been called to comfort the conflicted. I have been called to conflict the comforted, okay? So I just want to apologize beforehand that you might leave here today convicted, conflicted, and maybe a little uncomfortable, okay? So now is a wonderful time to fake uh, that you're not feeling well and you need to go grab a drink of water and then you just kind of make your way out the door. If you're online, it's much easier. Just switch to something else, okay? You'll be, you, you, you'll be far more comfortable that way around. But I do believe that what God has laid on my heart is going to stir us and challenge us, and it might change our lives if we heed the Word of God today. The Bible is full of verses that makes us sleep well at night. There's a lot of verses in there that really makes me sleep well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not 
want, right? That's the verse that makes me sleep well at night. Another verse that makes me sleep well at night is uh, Jeremiah 33 verse 3, call to the Lord and he will answer you, right? That's a fantastic verse. There's some good verses out there. I know the plans I have for you. Some great verses, right? All these verses make us sleep well tonight uh, or sleep well at night. I want to share a verse with you that keeps me up at night. Okay, the verse that keeps me up at night is Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. This is what it says. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done. Another generation arose after that. The context of this verse is this. God has just conquered the promised land through Joshua's leadership. And Joshua led the Israelites into the promises of God that for 40 years and many years before that, they've been yearning for, they've been hoping for, they've conquered it, they've taken hold of it. But then Joshua and his generation passes away. And after that generation that knew the things of God, that saw the miracles of God, that engaged God, another generation arises that doesn't know the things of God. Unfortunately, this verse is very true of the America that we live in today. A million people a year is leaving the church. Pew Research recently released a study where they showed the percentage of Americans that identified as Christian, and, and, and it might be a little far for you to see, but you'll see in the 1970s and pretty much all the way through to the early 2000s, you'll see that America is about 90% professing Christianity. This isn't people that's actively Christians. This is just general profession of if you ask them if they're Christian, they said, yes, I'm Christian. But then it starts dropping and it drops at about a percentage point a year. And at this rate, by the year 2045, America will be less than 50% Christian. By the year 2050, they estimate that in America, we will have more Muslims than Christians if current trends continue. America is less Christian than it's ever been in its history. And after that generation, a generation arose that knew not the things of God, nor the great things he did. What will our generation's legacy be? Currently, if you look at 13 to 21 year olds in the USA, you'll notice that only 4% of them holds a biblical worldview. 4% of, of 13 to 21 year olds hold a biblical view, worldview. Only 9% are resilient believers. The, the Barna group did some research and they, they broke the, the next generation up into different groups. Those who are, are non-Christian, 40%. 40%, that's four out of every 10 teens consider themselves non-Christians. Another 26% used to be Christian, but they're not practicing Christians. 27% are habitual churchgoers. They just go out of habit. And only 9%, that is less than one out of 10, 13 to 21 year olds, are resilient disciples. Compared to a mere 30 years ago, that same age group was more than 70% resilient disciples. 
This is encouraging, isn't it? I apologize, but I did warn you. I did not come to comfort the conflicted, but to conflict the comforted. Because the reality is that we are, most of us are here today, are listening to this word today, because we're finding ourselves in a space where we are believers. And this generation knows God. And this generation knows the things of God. But I want to ask you a question today about the next generation. I want to ask you a question today about the generation that would come after us. And I'm um, as part of this global outreach series, as you're having conversations about reaching out, I want to tell you that some of that outreach is on the other side of the planet. But some of that outreach is not on the other side of the planet. It's beyond that door that says, keep out. It's beyond the teenager's door that says, don't pass through here. It's beyond the, the, the it's just across the street. And sometimes we find it easier to cross an ocean to evangelize than we find it to cross a street to evangelize. Sometimes it's easier to go some other place for global outreach rather than just going down the street or making a friend or starting to serve the next generation in a unique way. I'm in the privileged position to, to be part of a, a global community of next generation leaders and influencers, business leaders, nonprofit leaders, church leaders, social media influencers that's come around from the, around the world that is looking at this trajectory that is, that is falling, this negative trajectory of Christianity and trusting God that He will come and uh, release a revival in our day, that He will turn this around. And I believe that this is something that we get to do. So, so we've, been, we've been researching this thing. We've been asking this question, why is it that the next generation is leaving? Why is it that the next generation isn't interested in the faith? And, and we've learned that there's, there's different things that are taking place. There's four major categories of, of, of issues that's being taken. The first category is that of identity. And, and we find that young people are struggling with issues and questions of welcoming. Is the church welcoming for somebody like me the second question is that of belonging and young people are asking the question is the church able to build the type of relationship there's a relationship gap between those in church and those outside of the church we're also finding issues of values and we're finding that young people are asking the question is this relevant to my life is church relevant to the life that I live? And lastly, issues of epistemology or, or theory of truth. And young people are asking whether or not the church is listening to the questions they are asking. But it's interesting as we go around the world and we do these studies and we, we have these conversations with a, with a global next generation that is moving away from the church. What we're finding is the questions they're dealing with are the same questions that we're all dealing with. It's the questions that will define every generation. These aren't new questions. In fact, um, uh, as you hear these questions, you're going to think of your own life and you're going to say, well, that's the same questions I'm struggling with. Those are the same things I'm going through. And these questions are actually the questions that ultimately define every generation that has ever been, but they're also defining this generation. And unfortunately, the church is doing a terrible job at answering these questions. I have two teenagers myself. I've got a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old, uh, and I, they are amazing thanks to their mother um, and Jesus, not to their dad that much. But I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I've learned more from them than what I could ever teach them in a thousand lifetimes. 
and having, having learned from them, having seen them work through these different things, I've seen these questions time and again being grappled with how they're figuring it out. They're so tired of me asking their friends, what questions are you working through? But it's interesting when I ask their friends, these same four questions keep on coming up. The first question is the question of identity. Who am I? The second question is the question of belonging. Who with? The third question is the question of values. What matters? And the last question is the question of epistemology. What is true? These four questions define us more than anything else. And it's these questions that the church is struggling with, that the church is struggling through. It's interesting as you consider these questions, you can, you can actually break them up into four categories. So, so the more analytically minded amongst you, um, I have a little present for you. I've taken these four quadrants and I've, I've put them into different blocks for you, which will, will help your analytical mind a little bit, right? So if you look at the, the two on the left-hand side, you'll see that they are things that, 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 that deals with that. So if we think at the how we figure these out, you figure the left-hand column you figure those out personally. The right-hand column, we figure that out together. So how we figure these things out, your identity and your values are things that you personally or individually need to figure out. Your belonging and your epistemology are things that we figure out together. We, we figure out our belief of truth based on school and media and all kinds of things that we're doing together. Who we belong with shapes our belonging. But the, the top line and the bottom line actually refers to the what we're figuring out. So if you look at the top, identity, Identity and belonging is us figuring out our personhood and values and epistemology is us figuring out our worldview. And actually, as we look at these things, that's the que- not only the questions this generation is asking, I believe these are the questions that we need to figure out how to answer if we are going to be effective at reaching the next generation. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about Grace Life Church, the organization reaching the next generation. I'm talking about you reaching the next generation. As long as we delegate this to someone else, I want to tell you we're missing the point. You are in this generation because God is a calling for you for the next generation. You are in this room today. You are online listening to this message today because God has an appointment to activate something in your heart to come and answer some things for you, but not just answer things for you, to set you up to answer some things for other people. God wants to use you. God wants to activate you to make a difference in the lives of others. If I look at our findings over the years and what we've discovered and found out about these different things as we've journeyed around the world and and had conversation with next generation leaders, we found that in each of these categories, there's, there's something unique that we've learned. Firstly, with regards to identity, what we've learned is that it's about identity discovery, not behavior modification. You know, so much of the church has become about behavior modification. Do this, do that, go there, do that, do the other. And the problem is when the church is so caught up in its method that it forgets about its mission, it dies. And the problem is too much of what we've presented to the next generation is a methodology rather than purpose and identity. 
Because we've taken Jesus and we've made Jesus the example for humanity. We've made Jesus the example for humanity. How many of you had a WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? Anybody? It, it, it made it its way. Uh, praise God, okay? What would Jesus do? And, and we grew up in a what would Jesus do generation, right? We said, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus act? Because it was all about Christianity being a way to act. I want to tell you, Jesus never came to earth to be an example for humanity. Jesus came to earth to be an example of humanity. He came to redeem our original design. He came to show us what it meant to be a son of God. He came to show us what it meant to be our older brother. He didn't come to show us a way to live that we can aspire to be. He came to show us an identity that we might discover who we are really are. And we've got to make that shift. Our, our, the way we live, the things we do is the tip of the iceberg. Our behavior is only the little bit of the iceberg, the 10% of the iceberg that sticks out above the water. The 90% of the iceberg below is our identity. And we will not reach the next generation by just pointing to the top 10% all the time. We've got to help them discover who they are. And raising our kids, my, my wife is, is, the, is the one that, that discovered this early on. And she made this decision. She said, we, we are not going to just modify the behavior of our kids. We're going to establish their identity. So I remember the first time one of the little toddlers, my, my eldest was a toddler, and he took his bowl of food, and he didn't like what we gave him, and he threw it over his head, away and the whole room was full of food and I wanted to address the behavior <laughs> I really wanted to and the next day because I addressed the identity we, we came and he, he took his food and he threw it again so I get it there's times when we have to address the behavior but you know what we told him what we told him all his life that's not who you are and when we teach our kids, when I walk into my teenager's room and I struggle to walk through my teenager's room because of all the things that's lying on the ground, I, I know I'm a pastor, my kids are perfect, but let me just be real for a moment. When I struggle to walk because of all the things that they've thrown around, I can have one or two conversations. I can either have the conversation of clean your room or else, or I can have the conversation, do you see what's around you? Is this who you are? You are a child of the most high God. You are royalty. You're amazing. And you're a representative of all things eternal and glorious. This room doesn't speak of who you are. If we can help them understand who they are, it will change what they do automatically. But if we make the gospel all about what they do, they might never discover who they are. The second core, core lesson from uh, research has been with regards to belonging, right? And what we've, what we've figured out is that young people equate love to time. All people equate love to time. See, as your kids grow up, when they're little, they demand your attention, right? 
They don't, a little baby, when they're hungry, they don't ask for your attention, they demand your attention. And as they're growing up, as they're little, they need you to be close to them all the time. They need you to look after them all the time. They need you to be there all the time. And, and, and so you've got to be involved all the time because they demand your attention. But there's a day, I don't know what day it is, but there's a day where overnight that turns around and they're not demanding your attention anymore. You're the one begging for their attention. Where's the parents of the teenagers? You know what I'm talking about, right? You're looking for ways to connect with them because suddenly they don't need you. They're not interested in spending time with you. They've got better things to do. And they've got a very good way of telling you that. So I've just decided, my wife and I, we've made up our minds that we are going to be as annoying as they were annoying when they were toddlers. (laughs) We're going to get them back. We're going to be in their faces. We're going to figure out how to play Fortnite. Okay, why? Because I like Fortnite? No, because they like Fortnite. Because I want to be involved in them. Now, they kill me all the time in these games. I I wish it was back in the day. There was a day that I could beat them at Mario Kart. That day is long gone. Okay, and now I get beaten all the time. But it doesn't stop me. I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to demand their attention. Why? Because I want them to know that I love them and I want to spend time with them. I want to tell you, if you ask Gen Z, what do they long for in their lives? One of the number one thing is mentorship and discipleship and somebody making the time to spend time with us. I cannot remember a single textbook from school. I cannot tell you what that textbook looked like. I cannot point to it in a store. I cannot remember what's in there. It's clear from my marks. I can tell you that I don't remember textbooks, but I can tell you vividly stories about just about every one of my teachers. Why? Because we learn from people, not from books. And I want to tell you that you might be the only Jesus that some young person might ever know. You might be the only Bible that they might ever read. Get yourself in their world. Find a way to spend time together. Third thing we figured out is that we've got to help them address values. We've got to help them figure out what matters in life. And what we've learned with regards to this is that we've got to restore the price in order to regain the prize. See, for too long, what we've done in Christianity is we've watered it down. We've diluted the gospel to the lowest possible denominator. We've, we've tried to make it as easy as possible to follow Jesus. We've, we've, we've tried to, to tell the next generation that, that it's easy, it's fun to follow Jesus. It's nice to follow Jesus. It's all good to follow Jesus. And we've, we've presented them with this idea that following Jesus is all about you. It's all about your comfort and you having fun and the music being to your liking and the seat being soft enough for you and it being short enough for you and it's all about you can I tell you something the gospel is not about you if you want to find your life you're going to have to lose your life and we've got to regain the price so that we might regain the prize because we only find our lives when we lose our lives when we realize that this life is not about me and my participation trophy this life is about him and his glory and his wonder and i am laying down my life for his sake we've got to restore the price if we're going to regain the prize of christianity We've got to get it back. 
See, we, we're doing these studies in Europe, and, and in Europe we're finding that young people are running away from Christian homes to go join ISIS in the Middle East. And when we, when we dug into it, we realized that the reason why they were running away from it is they were looking for something that would cost them their lives. They were looking for something that was worth their everything. But all they found in church was ping pong and pizza. It wasn't worth them. So they found something that they could give themselves up for. And the problem is we're presenting a cheap version of Christianity. I'm not saying that it's got to be old-fashioned. We've got to translate Christianity, but may we never dilute Christianity one bit. May we not make it cheap. May we not make it light. May we present them with the price so that they might experience the prize of Christianity. Third thing, the last thing we learned was with regards to the epistemology. And we learned this, we learned that truth has got to stand in the tension of debate. I think for too long what we've done with regards to the truth is we view the truth like a brick wall. There's principles and there's truths and there's these things. And and when we engage with people, we want to tell them this is what we believe, take it or leave it. This is the truth, and I understand the truth, and it's a brick wall. You can't interact with it. You can't change it. It is what it is. Well, I want to tell you that Jesus never presented the truth as a brick wall. In fact, he opposed the truth being a brick wall. Jesus presented himself as the truth. He presented himself, himself as the door. He represented his, himself as the way, not a brick wall, but an open door. The truth of Jesus Christ is a living relationship with a person that is the truth. It's not a set of rules somewhere in a book. And if we're going to reach the next generation, we're going, to get, we're going to have to get over what we know, and we've got to embrace what we are yet to discover. It will take me an eternity to not figure God out. But it's a relational journey. It's a path that I'm on in relationship with the truth. So do I believe that there is a truth? Yes, I do. Do I believe that the Bible describes the truth? Absolutely. The Bible plus nothing. The Bible minus nothing. I'm a Bible guy through and through. But I do not suggest that I have the authority on everything in the Bible. The Bible has authority over me and it will take me the rest of my life to try and figure out what it says. And it'll take me all eternity to figure God out. The truth is not a brick wall. The truth is an open door. And I'm not presenting people with the truth where I'm the authority on the truth. I'm presenting people with my engagement with truth being Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, and my reading of scriptures. And I am open to bring that truth within the tension of debate. We can have a conversation. And even if we disagree, let's seek him together. Let's desire him together. Let's read the scriptures together. And let's find the answer together. It's a different approach than saying, oh, we have the truth and you conform or die. And I believe that we need to grow in understanding that truth is a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ in our presentation thereof. So how do we cross the street? How do we cross the age divide? How do we move from just understanding this theory 
to reaching the next generation? How do you reach the next generation in your life? How do you get engaged in those that are around you? How do you make a difference in being a neighbor to those who need it the most? Well, to tell you that, I've got to go to a story that Jesus told. And the context of this story is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 27. And Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer or a teacher of the law, as he's often, they are often called in the Bible. And this certain lawyer stood up testing Jesus and he said, teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? And then Jesus asks him, he says, what's written in the law? And, and, and he, he answers to his reading of it in verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So you shall love God and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting what he presents here because what he's saying is he's putting the order right, right? We love God and because we love God, we can love others because we can love ourselves. If you don't love yourself, you're never gonna love others. If you don't understand the love of God for you and your devotion to him, that creates the foundation for your love for other people. So it's from that foundation that we're able to love others. Jesus replies to him in verse 28 and he says, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I know your Bible, like my Bible, doesn't have sound effects. But if the Bible had sound effects, the crowd would have gone, ooh, at this point in time. There would have been a sound effect that said, ooh, did he just ask that? Did he just talk back to Jesus? Did he just go, well, who's my neighbor? See, the problem is most of us don't ask that question. Most of us get to this point in the verse, get to this point in the scripture, and we say, oh, wonderful, I should love my neighbor like I love myself. But we never figure out how do I do that? Many of us would be perfectly content in listening to this message today, going, oh, yeah, somebody should really reach the next generation. Somebody should do something about that and leave you all comfortable. But what I'll give this lawyer is that he actually asks the question. He says, how do I do this? Who are you talking about? How am I going to bridge this gap? And so Jesus tells him a story, and I'm going to tell you which story it is and when it is. I risk losing you for the rest of this conversation because you're going to go, I know that story. I've heard it, I've seen it depicted in my children's Bible, I've seen the pictures, I've heard it, I've told it, I've taught it. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And there they go. (laughs) But I believe that God has something in this story that he wants to share with us today. And maybe, just maybe, there's something you've never seen about reaching the next generation and reaching your neighbor from this story. A certain man, verse 30, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell amongst thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. It's interesting that Jesus said that the man went from Jerusalem to Jericho and I don't know about your children's Bible, but that wasn't in my children's Bible. And to be honest, every time I've read this, I never found that significant because I didn't live in the time that Jesus spoke the story. 
But to the people that was within the sound of his voice that day, as Jesus told that story, the significant statement of the story was not the fact that a man was robbed and left bleeding and for dead, but it was the fact that this man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Because between Jerusalem and Jericho, on the 17 miles that you find between the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jericho, was the road that was called the Ascent of Adumen, or the Descent of Red, the Descent of Blood, because of the amount of people that were carnaged, that were robbed, that were wounded, that were killed on that path. Because between Jerusalem and Jericho was a very dangerous, small, little, narrow path that ran between the mountains. So when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan and he said a certain man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody knew what he was talking about. It was the, there was, it was the saint of Adam and it was the small, little, narrow road where the robbers would, would hide away in the crevices around the mountains and as people would travel from the one to the other, they would be robbed and killed. It was a dangerous road. It was a bad road. But it's also significant that Jesus is saying that this particular man traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho and not from Jericho to Jerusalem. See, the trip that everybody wanted to make was from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho was a desert town. It was dry. It was dead. It was poor. It was troubled. It was bad. Jerusalem was a beautiful town. It was modern. It was lush. It was green. It was fruitful. Physically, the one is half a mile higher than the other one. Jerusalem is half a mile higher than Jericho. When Jesus said that this man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was literally saying that this man's life was on its way down. There was a man that was traveling from fruitfulness, from goodness, from life, from flourishing, from the temple, from connection to God, to desert, to dry, to dead. He was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and now he was attacked, he was wounded, and he was broken. And I know that there are some of you within the sound of my voice today that is finding yourself on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're finding yourself in relationships that are bruised, relationships that are broken, finances that are on its way down, things that are not working out in the way that you had hoped, but you're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you're listening to me today and you're saying, but I'm that person. I'm that person that's on my way down, that's on my way broken, that I'm in that relationship. I'm in that financial situation. I'm in that job that's between Jerusalem and Jericho. So this man finds himself there. And it's as he finds himself in that space that the story continues. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. 
It's interesting the two people that Jesus pick in the story. But not only is it interesting that he picks these two people, it's interesting if you think about the road that they were on. This is the road, this picture depicts the road in the hills between Jerusalem and Jericho. And do you see the little road on the side there? It is very hard to miss a bruised and broken, bloody, half-naked person on that road. You've got to be real intentional about looking away and walking the other way. It is hard to miss somebody on that small little road. I mean, for crying out loud, you've got, you've got one or two choices, right? On the one end, you've got the cliff on the way down, right? So that's your one option, is you've got to, you've got to pass by the cliff and miss the, the bloody dying person on the side. Your other option is going against the rock face, right? But, but that's your options. It's one way or the other. It's not as if it's easy to miss the person. And I guess the lesson here is that a lot of us are going to a lot of trouble to miss our neighbors. A lot of us are doing a lot to not notice it, to delegate our responsibility, to have someone else take responsibility. But I think the other lesson here is the two people Jesus picks to put in the story. He picks the priest and the Levite. Both the priest and the Levite, they both work for God. They're both in God's service, both the priest and the Levite. Why does he pick the priest and the Levite in the story? He picks the priest because the priest is the most. He's the one everybody's expecting to work. He's got his robe on. He's got his priestly garb and he's, he's walking down the road and he comes to the bloody wounded person and he walks on. The Levite isn't the boss. The Levite is the servant. He's the, the temple servant that was helping out, that was serving in the temple. Why is the Levite there? The Levite comes, and it's interesting. If you look at the scripture here, yeah, it says that Eve, the Levite came to that place. And if you read the priest, it just says the priest went on. But when the Levite comes to that place, what does it say? It says the Levite came, and he came and looked. And then he went on. See, when the Levite gets there, he actually stops and goes right up to the person and then he leaves. Why the priest and the Levite in the story? Well, I believe the priest and the Levite represents the two reasons why we don't help why we don't cross the street, why we don't cross the corridor to the teenager's room, why we don't sign up to help in kids' ministry. They represent the two reasons why we don't get involved in people's trouble. They represent the two reasons why we don't neighbor well. The one reason is for the priest. He arrives at the scene, and he's too good to do anything about it. This is beneath him. This is below him. He is the priest. Certainly you cannot expect of the priest to bow down and help this bloody, messy, broken situation. He might look inadequate. He might be dirty coming out of this. He's above it. But the Levite comes over and he comes close. He wants to help, but the Levite feels he's below it. He's inferior to it. He's not good enough to help. So he looks at it and he says, I can't help because I'm not good enough. We don't neighbor because we are either too good to help or not good enough to help. And I want to tell you, both of those are alive out of the pit of hell. 
You are not too good to help, and nor are you not good enough to help if you are on the path and God places someone on your path. Do not do your best to miss them, but help them. Be present with them. God has brought you to that place. God has brought those people into your life for a reason. But a certain Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. See, the Samaritans were the least of the least of society. The Samaritans were the half Jews that they all looked, they were the butt of every joke. They were the part of society they looked down on. They were not the priests nor the Levites. They had nothing to do with the Jews and the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. So in this context of the story, this was the last possible person that the hearers expected to actually make a difference. And maybe you consider yourself the last possible person to actually make a difference. And that is why God brought somebody with a strange, strange accent from a far, far way away to come and speak to you today to remind you that you can be someone's neighbor. You can be someone's Samaritan. Verse 36, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell amongst the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy to him. Note that he didn't say he who attended the church service where somebody conflicted the comforted. Note that he didn't say he that said yes the loudest, but he who actually did something. He who showed mercy, then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. May you hear the word of the Lord today. May you hear the word of God today as you find yourself within the sound of my voice. May you hear the word of God today as God says to you, go and do likewise. May his words, the words of the one that spoke and there was light, that spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. May you hear him say to you, go and do likewise. And may his words to you be not instructional, but incarnational. May his words, the same voice that formed the heavens, the same voice that spoke to blind eyes and they saw, the same voice that spoke to deaf ears and they heard, may you hear that same voice say, go and do likewise. And may his words be more than instructional. May it be incarnational. May it shape 
within you the compassion and the ability to neighbor like he neighbored. To neighbor like he neighbored. Lord, I pray today, Holy Spirit, would you come and convict? Would you come and activate? Would you come and speak your word over the lives of people? Would you come and stir your truth in the hearts of people? And Lord, would you cause us to respond and say, Lord, make me a good Samaritan. Lord, I want to be what you call me to be. I want to do what you ask me to do. And if that's you today, if you want to respond and say, God, use me. I want to challenge you this morning. My challenge to you is simply this. If you want to respond to God and say, God, I no longer want to pass by on the other side. I no longer want to be too prideful and say that this is beneath me, nor do I want to be too inferior and say this is above me. But Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to neighbor. I want to reach the next generation. I want to be present in the lives of people that you bring my way. If that's you today, if you want to respond to his word today and say that, I want to invite you to just stand right there where you are. If you're online, it might be weird. Just stand up. Just say, God, this is me. If that's you today, don't you want to just show God, respond to his word and stand up and say, God, I want to be used by you. Anybody else that wants to respond to that word today? Say, God, this is me. Lord, I want a neighbor. I want to be present in the lives of those who need me. Lord, you see every person standing. You're aware of every heart of every person that is wondering if they should be standing. Anybody else that still wants to respond to this? Yes, Lord. It's okay. There we go. Thank you, Lord. That as we respond to you, you empower us to do. Lord, so I pray that you will come and activate us. Amen. Amen. You're welcome to take your seats. And, and as you do, I just strongly felt this morning as I was praying that there was uh, somebody in particular and maybe somebody's that is in need of a good Samaritan today that is in need of him coming to address you. And you know what's amazing about this story? Is Jesus tells the story about us being good Samaritans, but he was our good Samaritan. He was wounded so that we might be healed. He was broken so that we might be full. He was the anointed of God and he came and he anointed our heads with oil. The, the good Samaritan took the man and he placed him in an inn and he has taken us and seated us in heavenly places and we are hidden in him and he has taken care of us, not just for a little bit, but forevermore. He is our good Samaritan and maybe you're at a space where you've never done this, where you've never committed your life to Jesus, where you've never said, Lord, 
I want to believe in you. I want you to take my sin and my brokenness. Or maybe you just need to do it again and you need to acknowledge that again. But I want to give you that opportunity today. So if that's you today, if you want to say, here I am, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'm going to ask everybody, would you bow your heads and just close your eyes for a second? And I want to say, if that's you today, I want to invite you today. If you're here in the room, if you're online, would you reach out to us as well? But if you're here in the room and you need that prayer today, you need God to come and bandage your wounds. You need God to come and forgive your sins. Would you just look up at me for a second with every eyes closed and every head bows? I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Is there anybody else? Let me go. Lord, I pray for every person. Would you come and would you, in this moment, Lord, as they pray to you, as they speak to you, and they say, Lord, here am I, all of my sins, all of my brokenness, all of my wrongdoings. Lord, I accept the fact that Jesus Christ died for my sake, that He is my good Samaritan, and that He came to save my life. Lord, thank you that you have saved me. I will do whatever you tell me to do. I will go wherever you tell me to go. You are now my Lord and my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen.